I read an article a couple of weeks ago that was talking about arms and armament at the beginning of the Vietnam War. And they were talking about the American soldiers who had been sent over to the jungles of Vietnam wading through an unholy mess of sand and mud and rain and swamp and all sorts of unconscionable things. And they had been equipped with one of the most superior rifles that the United States military had ever engineered, the M16. And they took it out into the field and they found, uh, as they were testing this weapon, it was extremely accurate. It was powerful. It was precise. It was very cleverly engineered until they got into the hands of the soldiers. And they took it out into the muck, and they took it out into the swamps, and they took it out into the fields, and they took it out into the jungles. And all of a sudden, in the first couple of years of the war, the rifles, which were supposed to be an incredible asset to the soldiers, was now a trial that they had to overcome on a virtual daily basis. You see, it was so precise. It was so cleverly engineered. It had so many small moving parts. It was so exact in its specifications that just a single grain of sand in the exact wrong place could cause the thing to jam. What was great back at the base, what was great on the rifle range was not great in the jungles of Vietnam. On the other hand, the Vietnamese soldiers and the Chinese soldiers were using a weapon that was 30 years old by that point called the AK-47, the Kalashnikov Model 1947. It has six parts. And the genius of that weapon is that it's very loosey-goosey. There's so much wiggle room engineered into the thing that you can throw it down into the sand, you can bury it in the swamps, you can coat the thing in mud, hose it off, and it will fire just like it is supposed to function. Uh, on the range, it's a terrible rifle to shoot. Incredibly inaccurate. But in the jungles of Vietnam, when things were hard, when the conditions were not precise, when everything was falling apart and you couldn't control the contaminants around you, it was the perfect weapon. Well, here we are as believers, and here is Joseph in the middle of a kind of situation that we might refer to as a field versus range situation. We're trying to find out what kind of faith that Joseph has. Now, there are an awful lot of people, and this has been true of myself in many years of my life, where my faith is perfect on the rifle range. When all the conditions are working advantageously for me, when there are, is no wind, there are no sand uh, flying through the air, there's no mud on the ground, there's no rain from the sky, the faith works really well in conditions like that, but it doesn't work really well in the jungle when everything is going wrong when the pressure has been increased exponentially, when the trials have become much more lethal. You see, we need the kind of faith that will function in the field, not a hypothetical faith, not an ethereal faith, not a, a faith that should work in the academy or in precise conditions. We need the kind of faith that we can take out into the jungle and into the malaise of this kind of life, a 2020 kind of life, when it seems that so many things are falling apart before our very eyes, a faith that will work in conditions like that. Simple, strong, clear, direct, reliable, that kind of faith. 
And one of the ways that we help generate that faith is by seeing how it emerged and flowered and blossomed in the lives of others, including Joseph here in Genesis chapter 39. You remember what happened in 37, two weeks ago, when we introduced you to Joseph, this young man, the youngest of all of these sons of Jacob. He's entitled. He's privileged. He's kind of a papa's boy. And he's been given every luxury known to favored sons in that era. Things that none of his brothers received. And in fact, he's even received from the Lord a couple of dreams which make it exceptionally clear that he is to be favored above his family in total. And it's caused his brothers to hate him. And so they've kidnapped him. They've thrown him into a dry well and they've sold him to slave traders. And this is where we pick up at the beginning of chapter 39. So what I'd like to do this morning is talk about the three parts of Genesis chapter 39. First, we'll see Joseph's descent down into Egypt. Joseph's descent. Secondly, we'll see Joseph's dilemma. I'm sure a passage that you're already familiar with as he engages Potiphar's wife. Joseph's descent followed by Joseph's dilemma. And finally, Joseph's demise. And we all know what happens there. Descent, dilemma, and demise. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to read uh, this passage to you. We'll take it a chunk at a time. We'll make some observations about what's going on there so we understand uh, here in community the narrative of what Moses has recorded for us in Genesis chapter 39. And then we're going to ask two questions. What do we learn about Joseph from this passage? And then secondly, what do we learn about God in this passage? So just anticipate those things. The narrative will walk us through Joseph's descent, dilemma, and demise. And then the two questions that attend, what do we learn about Joseph? And what do we learn about God? We start in verse 1. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him, excuse me, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a very successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything, just the food that he had to eat. Interesting what happens here immediately following Joseph's sale into slavery. He's taken in by Potiphar. Potiphar's name means something in Egyptian like the God Ra provides. Ra, who is the head of the Egyptian pantheon, is nomenclature here by Potiphar, the one who provides. It's interesting this uh, nation is about to be exposed to exceeding calamity. We know that even here in the opening verses of Genesis chapter 39, it is not Ra who is providing for Potiphar. It's not Ra who's providing for Joseph. It's not Ra who will provide for Egypt and Israel. It's the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now Joseph. It is the Lord of the Israelites. It is Yahweh the great one who will reign from Jerusalem. 
Joseph is taken into Potiphar's house. And he proves himself very capable. You can see him maturing before our very eyes. In fact, he's a hard worker. He's an extraordinarily hard worker. He's an honest hard worker. And the Lord starts to bless that all that he does, and to the point where he becomes the leader over Potiphar's house. There is no one who has more responsibility, and there is no one that has more authority in Potiphar's house than Joseph. Joseph is the one who is organizing all that Potiphar has. And we learn a couple of things here about how that trajectory plays out. First, it goes extremely well for Joseph. Joseph is blessed, but also Joseph is a blessing. Joseph is such a blessing that I love how it says this in verse 6. So uh, Potiphar left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Now think about that. Here is Potiphar, who is a royal official in Pharaoh's court. He's an extraordinarily influential and powerful man, but he has an awful lot of things to do. But back at home, he's found a young Jewish slave named Joseph, and he's put him in charge. And he is so good at managing the estate, and he's so good at managing his money and his livestock and his household and all the other slaves and all the things that attend to being a very powerful man in Egypt and having all of that stuff that when he gets home at night, the only thing he has to worry about is, hey, what's for dinner? That's a very clever way of saying that Joseph did an extraordinary job with all of the resources that he had. But it's interesting to see how that is explicitly set up here. Take, take a look at that. Verse 3, his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed to his hands. Verse 4, so Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him and made him overseer of all that he had. And verse 5, then the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. You remember just a couple of generations earlier, the Lord makes a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. If you've got little note somewhere. Write that down. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. It's a promise that God makes to Abraham. And the fancy term that we use for that in the modern theological world is covenant. It's the covenant made with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you so many kids that'll be like the stars in the sky. I'm going to give you a land and cause you to prosper. You are going to be blessed. And also, verse 3, I will use you to be a blessing to the rest of the earth. Abraham, your family is going to bless everybody else. That's already coming to fruition here just a couple of generations later in Genesis chapter 39 through the life of Joseph. The Jews are blessing the earth. That is, the Lord is using the Jewish people here, Joseph, to be a blessing in Egypt. And we'll see how the Lord in his providence orchestrates good things for Israel and good things for Egypt. Now, middle of verse 6 is where we start to see the problem and here we have recorded for us, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Now, not all of you may understand that. But people like me and Joseph have this issue. If you turn out to be this guy, I mean, just it, it causes problems. He, he is handsome in both form and appearance. And, and let me tell you, well, you'll see here, right? Verse 7. And, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. That imprecation there, lie with me, it's only two words in Hebrew. It is never used in any ancient context in regard to marriage. 
Not once. It is pure lust, right? Yeah, if only uh, Potiphar's wife had uh, worked through the worth waiting for program and understood the principles there, maybe uh, she could have been preserved from a lot of trouble. But Joseph has. Lie with me. Now, you have to understand also how ancient Near Eastern slave culture worked. The slaves who worked for you were not paid employees. They were your property. And you could do with them whatever you pleased. And more often than not, in the ancient world, uh, slaves were used as sexual chattel, right? Uh, they were uh, abused and, and done away with when they became less than appealing. So the master's wife has said to the slave, Joseph, lie with me. And here we find an extraordinary moment in the life of Joseph. But he refused her and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything in my charge. Here is Joseph standing up for Potiphar and the responsibility that's been invested in him personally. He is not greater in this house than I am, uh, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against... I'll cover it with your hand. He's been talking about Potiphar, right? Potiphar who's given him a job. Potiphar who has blessed him. Potiphar who has offered him anything except his own wife. Potiphar who has taken him in and invested him with all of this authority and all of this honor. How can I do this extraordinarily evil and sinful thing against... Well, you would think Potiphar, right? My good buddy, your husband the one who has given us all these extraordinary things. But Joseph makes a theological point. Instead, he says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against who? God. God is the one who will be offended by this sin, he says to Potiphar's wife. God is the one who has ordained that these kinds of relationships are held only between husbands and wives, and that is sacred and inviolable. It cannot be desecrated. It cannot be played with. It cannot be brought down to the standards of the Egyptians, regardless of how they have commonly used their slaves. We will stick to God's standard, by God's precepts, in God's way and design for marriage. It's interesting because what Joseph is doing here is he's not only standing up to Potiphar's wife, he's standing up to the way that the ancient world and all of their egregiously evil empires used their slaves and thought about how marriage was only casually held intact by the promises made for men. He is laying out a lesson for the Israelites to live in a foreign land that they will need to adhere to for generations. He is standing up to the Egyptian empire, even as he is standing up to the Egyptian Potiphar's wife. Now, verse 10. And as she spoke to Joseph, and here's where it gets interesting. Day after day, day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. Now, if we're wondering about who Joseph is, this is maybe more telling than anything else so far. 
Um, Billy Graham used to have this uh, saying, it's not the first look at the girl riding by on the bicycle that gets you, it's the second, right? To have stood up in courage and in solidarity to the heart of God and his laws and his precepts once is noteworthy. It's remarkable. It's extraordinary. But to stand up in the face of adversity and to do the right thing, to deny yourself, to live by the standard of the God who has provided for you and not by your own heart and your own limbs, to do that day after day after day, it speaks volumes about the character that God is molding within Joseph's heart. Joseph is transforming as a standard bearer before our very eyes of the kind of faithful obedience and faithfulness to holiness that the nation is going to need that we need today. Verse 11 well, you, you know how this plays out. One day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment, some kind of cloak, tunic, right? Your outer covering. And she said, lie with me. He does the most extraordinary thing. He leaves his garment in her hand and he fled and he got out of the house. Uh, this isn't part of the notes, right? This is just good common sense here. Uh, this is true for men, and this is true for women, and this is true for our uh, young men and women who are growing up here, right? You're going to be exposed to dangerous things, uh, licentious, salacious, awful things. Get up and run out of the house. This is your best choice. Uh, some of you in a misguided sense of what it means to be holy may want to stand your ground and see if you can will yourself away from lust. Don't do it. Get up and run out of the house. The two things that kill more churches than anything else th that I've seen, the silver bullets which will take out a church in almost no time at all, they mishandle money or someone in a position of leadership and authority has an improper relationship with someone of the opposite sex. Right? Get up and run out of the house. Flee. Flee. Leave the judgment with God. Verse 13. So as, as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he, he speaking of her husband Potiphar, has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. She makes it an, an ethnic issue. This is the beginning of the denigration of the Israelites in Egypt from Potiphar's wife. He has brought us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And, and as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. While well, she's telling a partial truth, he did get up and run out of the house not as an attempted rapist, but as one who has a high regard for the holiness of God. And then she laid his 
garment up by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, the Hebrew servant who you have brought among us. And you can see some parallels here, maybe between this chapter and the early incident with uh, Adam and Eve, right? Who was she blaming? Oh, it is you who brought this man into our house. You can see the friction there. And, And he came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. The escalation is unbearable. Joseph prevails, but he risks everything to do so. It's his word versus hers, and he's a slave. He is never going to get a fair shakedown here. It's over before it even starts. Verse 19. Now, as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant, he's finding the accusatory tone, your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Now, we do get a little bit of a clue here that maybe Potiphar doesn't believe every word that his wife is saying. If this has been happening day after day after day after day, that truth has a way of working itself out. Uh, We found that recently with the president of a very large Christian university here in the nation who was just forced to step down because this egregious behavior that had been happening for years found its way out. You wonder if Potiphar knew what was really going on at home because for a slave to attempt to rape a royal would have been certain death. So not only does he not have Joseph killed, he allows him to go to prison. He sends him to a very special prison. He sends him to the prison where the king's prisoners were. Uh, This isn't another cistern, dry hole pit in the ground from which you will surely die. This is where the members of the king's family who were not in good standing, who showed up late to Thanksgiving dinner, who didn't give the requisite gift at Christmas, who whatever, right? That's where these people went. And so even here again, you can see the providence of God, how God is engineering a future for Joseph and a future for the influence that Joseph's life and obedience will have. Verse 21, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And and the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. And you just can't keep this guy down. He just keeps rising up. His character shines through. Everybody sees it and knows it. And whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. Hardworking. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge, just like Potiphar, because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Joseph's in prison. What does he do? He just keeps on. He just keeps on in success. The Lord keeps blessing. Three things we learn through Joseph's life here. These are worth uh, committing somewhere, not because they're my words, but because they emerge pretty obviously, I think, out of Genesis chapter 39. Number one, Joseph understands that what he does even in his trials, or maybe especially in his trials, reflects on the God who directs his life. Everything he does 
or doesn't do, whether he responds in obedience and holiness and righteousness and conscientiousness, or whether he responds in evil and sinfulness and licentiousness and salaciousness, and everything he does reflects on the God who is directing his life. We see that pretty easily here in verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. Verse 3, his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Joseph is an evangelist in Potiphar's house because he is the one who is accruing fame and magnifying glory for the God of Israel. Potiphar, who is named after Ra, whose devotion is to the Egyptian pantheon, is forced in his own home to recognize not only the presence, but the power and the prosperity that comes from the Jewish God. How is that done? How does God make himself famous in the house of Potiphar? He does so through Joseph. And Joseph understands this. Everything you do reflects on the God that you claim to serve. Do you understand this? If you do extraordinary, wonderful, obedient things, it is God who is glorified. And if you do terrible, evil things that you try to cover up in the darkness of night so that no one will see, all of these things come to light and they only cause people to denigrate the God that you claim to serve. In this way, everything you do has theological heft. Everything matters. It is either magnifying God for the people around you or causing dispersion upon that same God. Everything counts. Everything has an eternal consequence. So the decisions that Joseph is making here are life-altering for Potiphar and his household because they understand that Joseph, Joseph is the Lord's man. That's who he serves. And they are inextricably bound to each other, Joseph and his God. Secondly, second thing we learn from Joseph's life here is that Joseph does all the right things and still goes down. Joseph does all the right things and still goes down. It was very common in the ancient world for people to embrace something called retribution theology that God was a God of retribution. If you do good stuff, God blesses you. And if you do bad stuff, God curses you, right? This is how all of the gods worked in the ancient world. Now, we know that's not a distinctly Christian idea. We know that because of the life of Jesus Christ who comes and takes all of our sins upon his shoulders and reckons with them at the cross, that in fact the kind of religion in which we find ourselves worshiping week after week says this instead. You deserve horrible things because of how far you have separated yourselves from God in rebellion. But by his grace, he deals with the consequences that you had rightly earned by giving them to his son and by imputing his son's righteousness to you. 
You do not get what you deserve, that is, the wrath of God. And you do receive what you never could have earned, that is, the grace and love and presence of God. And all of this is achieved by Jesus Christ at Calvary. It is the polar opposite of retribution theology. So we want to be really careful when we go back and we try to reverse engineer what's happening here in Joseph's life because I've heard this, I've heard this before, maybe you have as well. Oh, Joseph went to prison. Joseph must have done something to make God angry, didn't he? Isn't this how this works for believers? If bad things are happening to you, you must be doing something wrong, and God is punishing you in order to bring you back to the light. Look, that just won't work. It won't serve you. Sometimes we endure trials having done all the right things, But God in his providence is working out what is best for you by bringing you deeper into the storm. Do you understand this? Sometimes you can do all the right things, make all the right moves, live in total obedience, and still have to go through the trial. That doesn't mean that God is punishing you, but it does mean that God is molding you, pruning you, refining you, and using you in his sovereign plan to achieve great things. You can do all the right things, and life on this side of eternity might still be really, really hard. It might be difficult. In fact, we find repeatedly that it is. That's the promise. You wonder why Paul especially prays so often that the followers of Jesus Christ will persevere. You don't pray for a people to persevere if you think that now that they are sanctified, now that they are justified, now that they are on the precipice of glorification, that everything's going to be hunky-dory. You pray for them because you know that on this side of eternity, things are going to be disastrously difficult, even for those who do all the right things. And Joseph seems to understand this. So the first thing we learn about Joseph is that Joseph understands that what he does reflects on the God he serves. We also learn from Joseph that he did all the right things and still goes down. And here's maybe the most extraordinary thing we learn from chapter 39 of Genesis is that Joseph doesn't allow his trials to foment bitterness. Joseph doesn't allow his trials to foment bitterness. Now here's what I mean by that. I've had this thought in my own life and I've seen it in the lives of others, particularly those who are interested in serving and following our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You're working hard. You're evangelizing, you're reading your Bible, you're discipling your kids, you're witnessing to your neighbors, you're... And then something bad happens, right? You lose your job. You get sick. Life becomes impractically difficult. Someone you love gets a fatal diagnosis. And you turn your face toward heaven and say something like this, I've done my part. Why aren't you doing yours? Haven't I served you? Haven't I been faithful? Haven't I done all the right things? In the 
implication is, God, you owe me this one. I don't deserve this. Well, if you're not going to work for me, that's it. Let someone else teach Sunday school. Let someone else clean up after the thing. Let someone else get up early and get to church on Sunday morning. If you won't do you, I won't do me. Uh, One of my favorite television shows of all time is uh, The West Wing. Martin Sheen plays the President of the United States. And in maybe the greatest episode of that show, there's a brief moment where uh, the president's personal secretary, who he, he's had for years and years and years, uh, goes out in a storm and buys a brand-new car. Seventy-some years old, it's her first brand-new car. And on the first time that she's driving it, she's driving it back to her office at the White House. She's hit by a drunk driver, and she's killed. And the president walks into the National Cathedral, and in a moment of unparalleled pomposity, he calls the, the Lord that he says he, he served all of his life. He calls him a feckless thug. And he yells at God, berates God. And he says, three million new jobs, wasn't that enough for you? I, I saved any number of millions of dollars and put them toward your children. Is that not enough for you? And he's furious because he is still operating not on the gospel, but on the auspices of a retribution from on high. This is how he views God. I've done all the right things, so bad things shouldn't happen to me. No, no, it's, it's all of my righteousness are as filthy rags before you, apart from Jesus Christ, and all the good things I've ever received have been all your grace and all the wrath that's never been handed down to me is all your mercy and the life that I now live I live in Jesus Christ alone who makes a providence for me in your future providence you see this in Moses' life right Moses does an extraordinary thing in service and in obedience. He stands up alongside Aaron in the very halls of Pharaoh and says on behalf of the Lord, let my people go. And he leads the people out into the desert. It is a great victory in obedience. And then what happens? Forty years of wandering around an arid desert. But he keeps going. Or or David. Even as a child, not one member, not even Saul himself of the royal army, will stand up to Goliath who is denigrating the Lord God. And as a child, he marches out in confidence for the Lord's power and slays the giant. And is soon anointed the future king of Israel. Right? A great demonstration of obedience. And then what happens? He's chased for years by the spears of Saul. Now, he could have just given up and walked away. I did all of the right things, Lord. Why won't you keep up your end of the bargain? Or Paul. Paul who switches his allegiances 
from the ways the law had been mired in Jerusalem to the service of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's beaten and he's shipwrecked and he's betrayed and he's endured unconscionable horrors in service to the king. And at some point, you wonder if he would have felt, I am doing my part. How come all of these waves keep crashing down upon me? But he just keeps going. And so does Joseph. Throw him in the pit. He goes to Egypt. He works hard. Potiphar's wife has him thrown into prison. He's down again. What does he do? He just gets back up and keeps working hard. He gets knocked down over and over and over again, and he finds that the Lord is there. Bitterness isn't worth it. We talk from time to time about idolatry, right? If the highest form of maturity in the Christian life is loving God above all other things, and loving anything more than we love God is foundationally idolatry, then let me give you one great test to determine if this is an idolatrous thing in your life, okay? Let God take it away from you and see if your sorrow burns into bitterness. It's okay for you to mourn the things that you love, for someone to die and to mourn their loss, to mourn the loss of health, to grieve the loss of a job, to lament broken relationships in a broken world with all of its broken promises. It's okay to grieve. And it's okay to cry out to God and say, I'm spent. I need help. I am not okay. But if that sorrow and that lament and that grief skips its way to bitterness. God, you owe me. I've served you. How dare you? Where do you get the right? Then it is just possible that the thing you worship most is the thing that you have lost and not the God who gave it to you. And that's a really easy sort of thing to say when you stub your toe, right? It's an altogether different thing when you lose the way that you provide for your family or you can't get out of bed because the pain is unbearable or you've lost a father or a spouse or a mother or a child. One of the ways that we find Scripture shine in its importance is that we see reflected back to us that we're not the first people to go through these problems. That there are many, many saints who have gone before and endured the same kinds of tragedies that we're exposed to day after day. And many of them failed. But many, many more shine through. And they're able to do that because of the thing that we learn about God. God is present in Joseph's pain, right? Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. In the pit, God is there. In his slavery, God is there. In his temptation, God is there. In his imprisonment, verse 21, 
God is there. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor. Verse 23, the Lord, excuse me, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. Whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. I can't tell you you're not going to go through hard things. That would be a lie. You are. They're coming. But I can promise you, those who follow Jesus Christ, our God is with us in all of them. Father, help us to find great resilience and perseverance and a divinely given fortitude because of our great confidence that in the midst of wonderful things and in the midst of tragic things you are there with us in Jesus' name I pray Amen